Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Alice K. Hill, and she published a book back in 2020. Title of the book is Under a Full Moon, The Last Lynching in Kansas. And it is uh, a book that is based upon real people in authentic locations. And you can tell that she's done a terrific amount of research in the book. I found it fascinating. I was reading a lot. It kind of felt like a frontier uh, novel, but uh, she can talk more about this book under a full moon. So Alice Cahill, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing well. Good. So for people who may not have heard your name, I know that you wrote another book on kind of gardening techniques. For people who may not have heard of you or your background, can you kind of talk about your background and what led you to this subject matter about the last lynching in Kansas? Certainly. Um, I've been a farm wife in Kansas since 1975. And when I use the term farm wife, that's a that's a truism. Uh, you marry a farm when you marry a farmer. And as I uh, grew up, essentially um, became from a young adult up into uh, full adulthood, I learned many things about living in Kansas. And I realized how deeply my roots were connected to this state. Um, we uh, farmed and ranched uh, rat, uh, cattle, uh, organic wheat, raised gardens, had two daughters, essentially just lived um, a very special and privileged life, but very, very hard and uh, built on generations of families who had come before us. And as I was writing the book, Under a Full Moon, I was able to draw from the personal experience of blizzards and droughts and heat waves and nonstop Kansas wind and economic difficulties. I was able to pull on all of that in order to help uh, fill out the characters in the book. And what part of Kansas? You're, I mean, I think that this takes place in the north central part of Kansas, correct? Well, northwest, northwest uh, gotcha. the very northwest corner uh, tucked in between Nebraska and Colorado. Um, right. So I, yeah, I grew up in Nebraska, so I kind of knew, I know about the wind uh, in the central part of the country, but can you kind of talk maybe about the background? So you had this, I mean, you really do a great, an excellent job of time, place, and description of this kind of harsh kind of frontier time, because the book kind of takes place right at the, at the beginning of the turn of the century, right? It does. It, it traces the primary characters from their arrival in Kansas uh, beginning clear back in 1881 is the beginning of the story when the primary character and his family arrive in Kansas. And then each of the each of the families that are dealt with in the book, uh, essentially their stories begin when they come to Kansas. Right. So they're come, they're kind of there were offerings of free land, right? So you had people come from Ireland, people from other states kind of coming to this new Kind of frontier, right? Yes, it, it was a wave of homesteaders looking for a fresh start. Uh, they were given a um, very big promise, a very unrealistic promise, and it was essentially funded by the railroads that wanted a tax base to help support the railroad system, and, and they were encouraged to come out, and they did come, and they had to stay because they had no options. They couldn't go back. Right. So kind of describe, so you have these different families, a lot of children are bad. Can you talk about kind of the difficulties these, these 
people these homesteaders had uh, coming to Kansas? Sure. One of the one of the primary issues were that women were having children essentially almost every year. A new baby would be born or eighteen months apart, uh, and there were no doctors. There were no facilities. Many of them were living in what were called sod houses. Um, there were in Northwest Kansas, there are few, if any, trees. There was no lumber. And so the building material was the very earth that they were sitting on. Uh, and the book describes the process of, of building a home out of chunks of, of sod, earth. And the women were the ones who had to struggle for their uh, hygiene, struggle for daily water, finding enough food for their children, and having one baby after another. It was, it was horrendous. Uh, living conditions, um, the, the term pioneer really says a lot about tenacity. Right. I mean, and so these are really kind of away from civilization. There's not very many near big cities of any any sort at that time, right? There, there were none. They were, there were absolutely none. Uh, my, my, gener my family, my ancestors, they came in on covered wagons, and they were the, the very first baby born in Atwood, the town that uh, I call home, uh, was, was a family member. And I have photographs of them basically on blankets in the middle of an empty prairie, and that was where they settled. Uh, the town soon came together, but they were always very small towns, never amounted to, to much. Um, it, was, it was quite difficult for them. Right. So you're in between kind of Denver and Omaha and Kansas City, really very rural. I mean, can you talk about how people tried to make money or make a living and how they had to prepare for the brutal winters? Well, it was subsistence living at its, at its, at its most extreme. Um, if you didn't grow it, you pretty much didn't eat it. And starvation was a true issue. By the time that these families came, the majority of the wildlife had actually uh, been wiped out. Um, the buffalo were gone. Um, there were prairie wolves still in place, but uh, very few deer, very few antelope. It was um, a lot of rabbits. That was one of the things they, they certainly were able to hunt, uh, but it, it was never an easy life. Um, there was there was a portion in the book where um, families were starving to such an extent that some of the uh, community leaders went back to eastern Kansas pleading with relief agencies to send food out there. Right. So, yeah, just like very perilous. And I mean, you had talked about people needed to have seeds. They were worried about wolves and coyotes. So they're really just... Uh, Really, frontier people, these pioneers really had a lot of pressures from a variety of different sources, right? They did. And yet, at the same time, they always had hope for the future. Um, it's said in this area, it's it's next year country, because next year is always going to be better than this one. And they stayed with that belief system. Um, they endured. There's actually a sense of pride in that endurance. Uh, they defend their right to have survived, to be to be tough people, and that's really a, a, 
something to to be accredited to the to the families. And many of the families that are in these areas still in these small towns, they're the same family names from the very beginning. Wow, interesting. So Atwood, Oberlin, you mentioned in the book. Uh, those, I mean, these are thousand person towns. These are very small towns yeah. still to this day. I mean, I don't know what it was yes. like a hundred years ago, but yeah. No, it's very true. We, the population boomed for a short while, but it has never been much. Uh, and the reason it boomed was because there were 12 children in a family and they were all surviving by then. But now the population has decreased considerably depopulation of Kansas small towns is an ongoing issue. Interesting. Just because of the family sizes are smaller now, birth control, et cetera, right? Right. And, and the opportunities for, uh, for making a living in agricultural areas is very difficult. Most of the, of the family farms, there used to be a, a family on almost every quarter section of ground and now those numbers have, have dwindled down to the point where there's maybe five farms running what used to be uh, 30 or 40 or 50 farms. Right. So they were smaller. I think you said the allotments back at the uh, 19th century, turned to the 19th century, was 60 acres each. So decent size in certain places, but very small as far as agricultural is concerned. Would you agree with that? That's right. And, and also Western Kansas, especially that Northwestern corner, it's very arid uh, and the grass is very short. Buffalo grass only grows a few inches tall. So the number of cattle you can have on an acre is, um, you know, well, actually you have to have about 10 to 20 acres per cow-calf pair. So it takes a lot of acres to run anything of any significance, of anything that is sustainable. Gotcha. So you had these at the at that time, the end of the 19th century, kind of smaller farms, homesteaders, pioneers. And he had to, I think you, the main family is the Reed family. That's kind of, you kind of talk in each chapter about these individual pioneer families. Can you talk about the kind of central characters, the Reed family? Sure. Yes. The, uh, the, the two primary characters that this book revolves around Richard Reed. His, his full name was Pleasant Richardson Reed, and he was born in 1879 and came to Kansas in, in 1881 with his family. And his story is heartbreaking, but he is the one who ultimately in 1932 is lynched. The second primary character doesn't come into the picture until much later, and that's his victim, Dorothy Hunter. Um, she was only eight years old at the time of her death. So in between that are other families that were directly connected to this culminating event of the, um, of the kidnapping and murder of the little girl. And, and my, one of the things that I wanted to do as I was writing this was to weave together how these families ultimately met at this horrible crossroads. And that was that was one of my goals, was to track their history from coming to Kansas to that culminating event. Right. So you talk about the Reeds. He and Pleasant or Richardson or Richard Reed was a little, he was kind of like the troubled one of that family, right? Or maybe he, not. Yeah. 
he was well um when I first heard about this event, I was just a child myself, and I spent summers with my grandmother in Atwood, and she had always warned us children not to ever get into a car with a stranger. And she went on to explain that a little girl in the area had been taken by a man and, and murdered. And I, I said, well, why would, why would a man do that to a little girl? And she said, well, he wasn't, he wasn't normal. There was something wrong with him. And as we went, I, I got, became more and more familiar with the story. Uh, Richard Reed was referred to as a slow, uh, probably developmentally delayed in some form or another. He, uh, he was referred to as a monster, of course. They called him an ape man. Uh, he was given many... Um, indications that he was mentally um, abnormal. What exactly was wrong with him, we'll never know fully, but in the book, uh, my explanation for that was a combination of a, uh, he was the firstborn in his family. Firstborn children frequently are hard deliveries. And here his mother was was uh, in a pioneer system when when no no doctor there. Um, so he might have had oxygen deprivation at birth, which made him slow. And then he also this this was a fact in his um, I was able to gain his prison photograph from his first incarceration and he had a, a scar on the back of his head behind his ear that looked just like a hoof print like if he had been kicked in the head by a horse, which then would have led to a traumatic brain injury. So that was built into this explanation of why he was um, deficient in normal um, standards of behavior. Right. And so and then in the book, he's kind of, kind of being harassed by his dad. So he's kind of abused by his father who says he's only good for hard labor. Right. And so mm -hmm. it probably just compounds the issue. Uh, that and then you also kind of include these other families that are tied into this whole story, right? The McGinleys, and then that becomes the guy who becomes a, uh, arrests him eventually, right? Yes, yes, yes. And the McGinley family of its own, each one of these families carried with them a unique and yet common theme, which was we're coming to Kansas, we're going to make something of ourselves, we're going to be somebody. We are going to conquer the great dream of America. And then reality hit and there were dynamics within the relationships of that family, uh, religion, alcohol, um, tempers, the Irish temper, all of those things became revealed to me through, uh, throughout this research. And as I, as I went through getting to know each one of these families, I became very attached to them and very uh, sympathetic to what they had endured in trying to settle the, the most center part of America, you know, um, and we, and we need people like them. We'd have never made it without them, but, oh, it was not easy. Right. So you have these kind of hard scrabble and how, I mean, he kind of became, uh, I mean, it, it compounded. He became more troubled. And I mean, it wasn't, this was the murder of the young child 
was part of a series of events, right? It was. He, uh, at the age of uh, 37, Richard Reed had been placed out in eastern Colorado, uh, near Burlington, Colorado, in Kit Carson County. That was the last portion of empty land available. And as families, this was another factor, as, as those young families that first came to Kansas with their little children, as those little children grew up, they all needed places to find a way to make a living. And so each child was either farmed out to someone else or set up through marriage. Um, and so Richard was sent out to Eastern Colorado along with his, his sister and, and her husband to Kit Carson, Colorado. And while he was there as a bachelor, he became involved with a 16 year old girl so he's 37, she was 16. She was part of a very um, exclusive or uh, res restricted um, religious community. And he, he attacked her and, um, and was, uh, he was very abusive to her. She almost died from that. And he was captured by those people and um, was almost lynched at that time. Wow. But 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 they stopped the lynching before that happened, partly because they were so concerned about they were from uh, German, Russian, German heritage. And at that time, 1916, the Russian German settlements were under a lot of um, political pressure within the area. So they were right. uncomfortable. With, yes, yes. World War One, all that stuff. Right. And those exactly. lynchings, for people who don't know, that was actually much more common back then than you think not just racial lynchings but just lynchings in general and there was a famous one when i grew up in omaha nebraska i think it was 1919 or 1920 where they like they they it was just really brutal the really brutal fights in the midwest and they literally the i think the mayor of omaha kind of came out he was kind of very heroic but he came out to stop the lynching and they lynched him so, oh my gosh yeah so that's there's another lynching in that you know, relative geography, close, relatively close to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, really, there's just, I mean, it's, it's that frontier sensibility. So what happens next in the story? Well, after, after Richard spends some years in the Colorado penitentiary for his first crime, he is released. And again, in the book, it talks about the social well, or social uh, reforms that were going on in the prison system. And evidently there was very little knowledge of his first crime because he came back to his home community and just sort of was reabsorbed into the, into the family dynamics. Uh, again, he was, he was ostracized. He was basically just utilized as, as a labor, a laborer. And I got all of this information through newspapers. Uh, the newspapers of that time had a lot of little social tidbits. And uh, you just spend hours and hours and hours reading through the social tidbits. And suddenly, boom, there'd be a little something about the Reed family. Or boom, there'd be something about the McGinley family. And, and so I gathered all of those tidbits and created then from that uh, 
a, a, a larger picture. I think of it in a way as archaeology. You find a little pottery shard and then you find another little shard and you clean that up and you see, do those match together? And do I have one pot or two pots? And uh, so that was my how I did this. And, and he came home. Uh, it talked about him doing different types of jobs for different people. He went on to a, a custom harvest crew. Um, but ultimately, um, in 1932, there was the misfortune, horrible misfortune of him picking up this little girl and um, that that began the end. That was the beginning of the end. And what, I mean, just to go back, when you were doing research in Western Kansas, what was that like? Did you have to go to Wichita or what, what was it? Did you go, was there a local repository of some of these old newspapers? Or it, it was interesting. It took me quite a lot of years, mostly because I was working and living a, a real life while I was trying to write this. And I, I started out just going to the Colby um, Museum, and that's where they had the newspaper archives. They have them on microfilm. Is that in Colby? Yes, in Colby. Okay. Uh huh. Uh, and I, I would spend all the free time I had looking through those newspapers. I went out to Denver, Colorado, and got on the Colorado um, microfilm of those newspapers, and that's where I was able to find more information about the first event. Um, and a, a rather funny thing, I had spent all day going through the newspapers, not knowing the date, not knowing the name, not knowing anything, but I had a, a just a little window to follow through. I got just to the very end and found it, and they were closing down the, the library, so I had to leave. <laughs> I was so frustrated, uh, but... I was able to get that information and I was able to get um, his prison uh, number for the Colorado Penitentiary. And from that, I was able to get his um, photograph from, from his incarceration. And that truly was when the book shifted gears. I, I had no, uh, I really had no idea why I was writing this book or where it was going to go. It, it unraveled itself more or less. And when I, when I saw his photograph, I suddenly saw him as a victim himself. There was something in his eyes that said I needed to tell his story. And that's really where everything began to, to come together then. And so your impression of him was not just as kind of a murderer, but also as a victim. Is that what you're saying in that picture? Exactly. I I fully intended to hate him like we all did. You know, he was this monster. But when I saw his photograph and, and there and his eyes, I you know, I it sounds odd, but his eyes spoke to me, and I felt compelled to find out why, why would this man have done this? And, and the more I researched, and I have to add too, I, I was a school nurse um, for quite a few years and I dealt with a lot of children who had emotional issues, I, uh, um, behavioral issues, difficult family issues, the ones who were bullied, the ones who were ostracized and isolated, that I've always felt like it was part of my role to 
to protect and to help them. And that was what I felt when I saw his photograph was he needed my protection. He needed something from me. So, I mean, you don't want to give away the whole what happens next in the book, but what happens, like what led up to that second victim, Dorothy Hunter, and why, why was she not being watched like why why was he able to pick her up yeah this is this is a perfect example of an opportunistic event it was the last day of school she was walking home from school with her sister and a friend and she realized she had left her lunch pail at the school this is a very tiny town of selden i mean when you're talking tiny town selden fits that picture and so her sister and her friend said, you got to go back and get your lunch pail. There, you know, school's over for the year. You know, mom will be mad at you if you don't get your lunch pail. So she turned around, went back to the school. And somewhere between there and getting home, he picked her up. He was on his way back from a neighboring town. He had just bought uh, bootleg liquor, which again, the, the times and in, in Western Kansas, bootleg liquor was a big issue. And he had, he had bought some liquor and was driving back on his way home. He went through the town of Selden and saw her and he just picked her up and away it went. And how did, how was he eventually arrested for that? Well, he, he, he literally turned himself in, according to the newspaper accounts. After the event, he turned himself in, and the deputy said, oh, you're just drunk, go home and sleep it off, and sent him back to the farm. And then the word got out that there was a little child missing and had been missing all night long. Um, communication has changed so much. In, today, there'd have been an Amber Alert, there'd have been uh, cameras at every store, there'd have been cell phones, people would have known all over the place that a child was missing. At that time, there were, there were telephones, but many people didn't have them. Uh, towns weren't communicating with each other. So while they were looking in one town, another town might not have known about it. It was, it was just a breakdown in communication. Right. So, yeah. So it's just a really like a nightmare event for any parent. And uh, so what, how did he end up getting stuck in the jail? Well, they, when they realized that there was a little girl missing and then the deputy said, well, you know, this, this weirdo came in today and somebody said, well, you know, that weirdo's got a record and they went out to the farm and, pulled him out and brought him into Colby and put him in the jail there. So they ended, he ended up in Colby. Right. So the same place where you were doing the research is where, where the whole, the last lynching in Kansas took place. Right? Well, yes and no. Uh, he was held in that jail for a period of time until he confessed fully. And he led the, he took the, the officers out and a lot of other, people who'd been searching for Dorothy, he took them to where he had buried her in a, in a straw stack. And then when they brought him back to Colby, they realized that this was not going to go well. And 
the sheriff made arrangements to take him out of Colby and they took him to a, a neighboring town quite a ways away of St. Francis, Kansas. And there's a lot of layers to that as well. Um, as I say, each time I got a piece of information, it was just more and more intriguing to me. And so that brought in another character, the, the sheriff of St. Francis, Mr. Bacon. I thought, I need to know his story. And as I began to research Mr. Bacon's story, another just heartbreaking life experience. And here he ends up being a man who did not want this kind of trouble landing in his lap. He is the one who's in charge of Richard Reed when the lynching party shows up and removes him from the St. Francis jail. And they they take him from St. Francis and then and then it goes on from there. <laughs> gotcha. So Colby, St. Francis is like in the upper far west, northwestern part of Kansas. So yes. Why, why did they why did they take him to St. Francis? I don't get it. Is that was considered to be safer or mm. nobody was going to find him? It's a really good question. And in the book, there's indications that oh what, what really what they should have done is taken him east to Topeka. Right. But not further west into an even smaller town. I, you know, Mr. Bacon, while he was currently the sheriff, he had been the janitor of the courthouse prior to that. He absolutely had no law background, you know, no police background. Nobody went through the police academy back then. Right. There was a job opening and you said, hey, maybe I'll take it. And right. so... Like he was like a real sheriff, like what it was back in the UK or something like yeah, somebody yeah. gets appointed and you just do the job. You're a member of the public and then you're the sheriff and then you're a member of the public again. That's right. exactly, exactly right. He was not prepared to have this land in his lap. And again, I just felt, I felt grief for him. Um, his life would have never been the same after this. And that was the, one of the points of the, of the book as well as that, that at Every step along the way, people were impacted in a way that they never probably fully recovered from. Uh, these were not people who were normally going to go out and hang a man. That, you know, not in their right. not in their plans. <laughs> right, and I think that that's actually common in these events is that the, the you just get supercharged and things get out of control, and I know those people are. Like we're waiting for this to happen. Like they're they just like you can see some of these other lynchings. There's another guy, was it Frank or something? He got lynched. You know, people just get angry and and then it blows over and they get hung. I mean, there's a lot more in this book. I mean, what I mean, we're what would you like to add? I mean, I know there's a lot more. I don't want to give away how it all plays out, but what would you say? the reader would find if they, when they go and get under a full moon, what would you, what would you say would be the, they would see? I mean, other than the really great descriptive stuff that you, I mean, about the time and land and farming and, and homesteading and pioneering that I found super interesting, but uh, can you talk a little bit about, about what other people would get when they read under a full moon? Well, I, uh, one of my, uh, one of my reviewers had, had used the word compassionate and I, I appreciated that they used that word because compassion could have prevented a multiple damages. They, like, for instance, uh, 
the, the little girl was seen with Richard Reed in a restaurant just shortly before he ended up murdering her. And there had to, he had been, he, she had been with him all night long. There had to have been people who saw her and knew something didn't feel right about this. And if one person had had enough compassion and enough action in their minds to say, hey, little girl, are you okay? Is there something wrong? If we could step up when we see there's a problem, even if we're wrong, at least we might be able to stop something from happening. She would have lived. Richard Reed would not have been lynched. All of those farm families that were involved in a lynching would not have had to deal with that the rest of their lives. So my hope is that we all have some compassion, that we're kinder to each other and that we watch out for each other and we step up when we need to. Right. And where's the best place for people to get under a full moon, the last lynching in Kansas? Well, the easiest, I suppose, is on Amazon. It's available there, both um, paperback, ebook, and also there's an audio version, uh, which for me to hear somebody else reading this was quite um, fulfilling, I guess you could say. Uh, um, so the audiobook is there. And then you can also go to Wild Blue Press. They were the publishers of the book. Um, you can order it directly through them as well. To Wild Blue Press. So they do have an audio book so people can listen to uh, this book under a full moon. And if do you have a website or contact information or social media if anybody I, wants to reach out to you? I do have a Facebook page. I don't have a website. Um, and it's I think it's just Alice K. Hill. I actually can't tell you real right. quick. Right. So Alice K. Hill, it's Alice K is spelled K-A-Y Hill H-I-L-L. So it's your your full three name, right? Yeah, yes. K K is my is my maiden name. Oh, and right. so and uh, both both my parents were published authors. Um, and so I wanted to carry that forward. Carry that tradition on. Well, good for you. I mean, very very well done book, very well written and really interesting. You've got all the kind of details of that time. I really felt like I was there in West Kansas. So congratulations. Again, the title of the book is Under a Full Moon, The Last Lynching in Kansas by Alice K. Hill. So Alice, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for your time. Right. Appreciate I, it. I appreciate it too. Stay there for a second. Okay. Okay. So now that